0: In uh, Joshua chapter two this morning, I'm going to read the whole chapter as we begin, and you may stand with me. And if if, uh, if if you're able to, and if you need to sit down, that's okay. As as we read through this as well, but we're going to stand now if you're able to. In, in honor of God, as we read His Word and again, uh, feel free. In fact, I may uh, halfway through let you know you can you can sit down. I'll read the rest. Here's what we read, uh, beginning in, in verse one. Remember, as we come here, we're talking about. The, the, the God keeping his kingdom promises in the book of Joshua. This first section is talking about courage and kingdom promises. And so God has called his people to have, have courage. He's called Joshua to have courage. And that word courage there means, means resoluteness, steadfastness, continuing in obedience. And in this section, as we talk about courage and kingdom promises, we're going to be seeing the ways in which God, enables his people to have courage, to be steadfast, and um, we'll begin here in verse 1 of chapter 2 of the book of Joshua. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, Men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my Father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, "'Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you.'" You may be seated as I continue reading here. "'Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, "'Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you.'" And hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go to your. You may go your way. The men said to her, "We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood." hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing and then the two men returned they came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun and they told him all that had happened to them and they said to Joshua truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Father, we would ask that you would give us courage this morning. We pray that you would help us to understand your word, to understand the the good news of the gospel contained in it. We pray that you would help us to be faithful to fulfill the things you've called us to do. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we, like the Israelites, are living in a time where God has made demands on us and given us promises, and yet the promises that God has given us have not yet been realized fully. In fact, if you think about it this way, the demands that God places upon you could not be greater. Literally, they they could not be greater. Jesus says, look, if you're going to come after me, you have to lay down your life. You have to die to self. You have to pick up your cross daily and follow me. There there is no greater demand that God could place on you than the demand that God has placed on you. Literally every aspect of your life falls under the domain of King Jesus. There's no realm of your life where Jesus says, okay, I won't speak into that realm. Every realm of your life belongs to Jesus. Imagine that part of your life that you hold most precious, that relationship that you treasure the most, that, that hobby that you enjoy with with the greatest amount of joy, whatever area of your life you treasure the most, that most intimate place within your soul, King Jesus says, I I reign over that. The, The demands that God places upon you literally could not be greater in terms of obedience. The demands that God makes of you are great in this life. And yet the promises also literally could not be greater. He promises you eternal life. He says, I'm going to allow you through through faith in my son Jesus Christ in his per- because of his perfect obedience, his death on the cross and resurrection, you place your faith in him, you make him Lord of your life. I, I'm going to I'm going to allow you to live for eternity. I am going to give you joy beyond your comprehension. I'm going to allow you to live in relationship with me forever. The promises that God makes to you could not be greater. And yet, simultaneously, the demands that he places upon your life also could not be greater. There's nothing greater that God could ask of you than that which he has asked of you. Absolute, total, complete obedience promising absolute total complete joy. I think it's a fair question, in fact even a question that scripture calls us to ask. Will God be faithful to fulfill the promises that he's he's made to me? Can he fulfill those promises and and will he fulfill those promises? It's a question that we see that scripture gives us encouragement regarding the answer. For example, Ephesians chapter 1, listen to what Paul writes. He's just talked about how God should be blessed and the amazing thing that God does in, in bringing about salvation in our lives. And then he says, In Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, so that that moment, you believed the gospel, the good news, you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our, our future inheritance until, until it happens, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then Paul talks about how he, he praises God and praise for them, giving thanks for them. I say, I pray, Paul says, I, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul saying, look, I want you to grasp the nature of what God has promised you in the future. And I want you to think about the immeasurable power that God has. A power that was demonstrated in, in the present in his salvation of you. And the power that he worked in bringing Jesus Christ back from the dead. Paul says, I want you to contemplate the power of the gospel in the present. So you can understand the power of the gospel in the future. That God will fulfill the things he's promised of you. In other words, as you think about what God has called you to do now, as you think about the incredible demands that God has placed upon you in love right now, calling you to submit your entire life to him, God says, I want you to know, I want you to see the power at work now to give you hope that what I'm telling you to do is going to yield fruit of, of eternal glory as I fulfill my promises to you. Have courage, in other words. Right. in this text remember Joshua has been called to courage there are, are things he's going to have to do in the present that are, that are difficult and there's promises that God has made about the future that are, that are grand and in this, in this text God reveals some of his power to Joshua and the people in, in the present so they can have hope that he's going to fulfill what he's promised to do in the future. Here's the main idea that I want us to, to think about as we look at this text. The power of the gospel in the present, the power of, of God's good news in the present, gives us courage as we anticipate the power of the gospel in the future. The power of the gospel now in the present, the power of the, the gospel working in our lives, and the lives of other people, in the lives of the, of the world, That the power of the gospel now gives us courage, gives us steadfastness, it allows us to be resolute in being obedient to the things that God has called us to now here in the present because we have encouragement as we anticipate the power of the gospel in the future. If God is powerful in his gospel now, we believe that he will be powerful in the gospel in the future. If God does amazing things for the good news of his son Jesus now, we believe that the things that he said are going to happen in the future will happen. So let's let's talk about this text and see some ways that it helps us meditate upon the power of the gospel and different aspects that we see in the text that help us see the present power of the gospel, how the, the gospel is powerful in the present. And here's the first one, and it may not make intuitive sense to you at first, and so we'll walk through the text a little bit. But the first thing we see here is we see the present power of the gospel is seen as the world rejects it. As the world Rejects the gospel message. We see that the gospel message is powerful. We see the the power of the gospel in the present as the world rejects it. You say, "Well, Daniel, what in the world does that mean? How is that the case?" Let's let's look at the text. Joshua begins by sending these these two spies to go into the land, and as as you see him do this, there might be a little bit of tension. Remember the last time in the book of Numbers that spies were sent across the Jordan River? It didn't go very well. Twelve spies were sent in. Ten spies came back with a good report. Two spies, uh, Ten spies came back with a bad report. Two spies came back with a good report. Joshua, maybe, maybe he just does the math and just sends two spies this time. Uh, and they, they go into the land. And also, they, they go from an area in which there have been some, some terrible immorality committed with the Moabites before. So as the story begins, there's a little bit of tension. How is this thing going to go? But we see that some good things are going to happen here. The spies go into the land, and they go specifically, Joshua tells them, to go to Jericho. Now, what is Jericho? Jericho about this time would have been a a city. In fact, it was one of the oldest cities that we, we know about, one of the oldest places of human habitation that we're, of which we're aware. There's this, this city of several thousand people in Joshua's day. It was an area with kind of some of the, the battlements and stuff. It was an area that kind of had about as much territory as, well, imagine the, the farmhouse and the counseling center and our church building. Kind of take those buildings together and that's about the size of the city of Jericho, several thousand people living within the walls, and then, you know, some some people kind of living in the surrounding area who would have, at this point, maybe have gone to Jericho for safety, at least by the time you get to Joshua chapter 6. And as you think about the city of Jericho, what's, what's the thing you think about? The walls, right? As the Israelites would have approached the, the city of Jericho, they first of all would have seen kind of a Uh, a a retaining wall and that retaining wall would have been about six feet high and then there would have been a a wall on top of that about six feet wide and maybe 20 feet tall and then there'd be a kind of beyond that wall there'd be a little embankment going up and then a wall on top of that and so in other words if you were kind of standing on the outside of the retaining wall looking up at the walls of Jericho it would be some 40 50 feet in the in the in the air to the top of that wall it was a, a massive structure for that region and so the spies go into the city of Jericho, they go and they mingle among the, the several thousand people who are there, and it says they go to the house of Rahab. Rahab's house probably served as an inn or tavern, she's a prostitute, part of the immorality that characterizes the Canaanite world, right? Remember what happened in the book of Leviticus, what God said about the, the evil, the immorality of the Canaanites, remember he says in Verse eighteen, uh, chapter eighteen, verse twenty-four. He says to his people, "Don't make yourselves unclean by any of these things." He talks about all the types of different immorality. For by all these things, the nations that I'm driving out before you have become unclean, and the land has become unclean, so that I, I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the, the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations. The land become unclean. So here's Rahab, and, and she is a Canaanite, and she represents the sexual immorality for which God says he's, he's removing the Canaanites from the land. Now, as the spies go into the city, opposition is encountered. Now, we we don't know how the king of Jericho finds out that they're there, but someone tells him, and he sends messengers to Rahab, and they tell Rahab, bring out the men who've come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. In other words... Somehow, and, and there's a lot of knowledge, we don't know how the people got it in the story. We don't know how Rahab is going to say the things that she says here in a few verses. We don't know how the, the king finds us out. We don't, we don't know how they know these things. But they recognize, they've, they've heard the story of the Israelites. And they have at least some inkling of the gospel promises that God made to Abraham 400 years previously. And they're in opposition to it, right? So God has, has promised Abraham and his descendants through the, the, the message of the, the, the beginnings of the proclamation of the gospel. He's said, you're going to go into this land and you're going to receive it and you're going to be a blessing to the nations. And the nations who are there hear that that message, some aspect of it, and they say, no, we, we do not desire that. And the king, as he talks to, to Rahab, through perhaps through these messengers, he, he's saying, uh, what they represent is a is a danger to me and my realm. His realm probably just wasn't a king that had a, a vast domain, but but the the realm of the city I'm I'm in charge of, and and these people represent a threat to my kingdom. Deuteronomy tells us we shouldn't be shocked at his opposition, right? It's clear throughout the story of Scripture that God's kingdom is going to clash with the kingdoms that that don't desire it, with the kingdoms of, of the world. These kingdoms aren't going to mix with God's kingdoms. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, for example... Moses says, look, when the Lord brings you to the land to take possession of it, you're going to need to clear away the nations before you. He says, don't intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And so Rahab is going to have to make a decision. She can't be loyal to the king of Jericho and king Yahweh, and she makes a decision. As she encounters this opposition, she decides... To follow Yahweh. Now, some people find her response troublesome. Uh, she responds by saying, I don't know. Now, clearly she does know where the men are. Clearly she does know, we're going to see in a few verses where they come from, and she knows that they haven't left the city, and yet she, she says that's what's happened. Now, we'll get to this in, in just a moment, but, but notice Scripture doesn't condone her, her line, doesn't say, yeah, this is a, the right thing to do. What Scripture does is it talks about Rahab as it talks about her faith. For example, in Hebrews chapter 11, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, disobedient because she had given her friendly welcome to the spies. Now, we'll get back to that in a moment, but, but notice this. Here's the main thing I want us to think about in this, this section. The presence of opposition to the gospel should not surprise or discourage us. Instead, opposition to the gospel reveals the reality of the struggle that God has said that we will be engaged in. The opposition to the Israelites as they enter the land shows the truth of what God has said about his kingdom He says, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, again, you're to drive out the the people who are there that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. In other words, every time that the kingdom of God is, is being established, the kingdoms of this world will resist it. The Abrahamic covenant cannot be fulfilled in conjunction with those who are going to worship other gods. The people of God cannot worship Yahweh God and the gods of the Canaanites worship as well. The gospel message that was begun and proclaimed to Abraham is a message that is going to encounter opposition. Opposition to the gospel is going to happen in every culture in various ways. There's there's no culture that exists, no kingdom that exists in the human realm that is not going to oppose the gospel. They may do it in different ways, for different reasons, but the ultimate reason, underlying reason, remains the same. God's kingdom and the world's kingdoms cannot coexist. G.K. Chesterton one time said this, he said, I say that a man must be certain of his morality for the simple reason that he will have to suffer for it. (laughs) You better be certain of of why you have the morals you do, because the morals you have are going to come into opposition with with others. And this this is especially true for those of us who are believers. As our our gospel-fueled way of living comes into opposition with those who are in the world, that's not a sign of of defeat. It's not a sign that should discourage us. Indeed, the power of the gospel is revealed as the world opposes it. If the gospel was not a powerful message that, that threatened the systems of this world, then the world wouldn't oppose it. In fact, it should be a huge warning light to us if our, if our morality, if our gospel-fueled morality doesn't threaten the status quo. Our unswerving allegiance to the gospel should threaten the values of our school, our city, our country, our families. The morality of the first century Christians as they held to the gospel was a huge threat to the Roman world, right? As, as Christians... As Christians cared for the children who had been abandoned, they threatened the family order. As Christians refused to worship the emperor, they threatened the, the political world. Christians in the first century were powerful forces of opposition because they were faithful to the gospel. And so as we encounter opposition to the gospel, it should encourage our hearts to recognize, okay, this is a powerful message. This is a, this is a threatening message to the, the systems of this world. Are you a threat to the social order? I I hope so. I hope you're a threat. I hope that the levers of power that that our society is able to to turn and and cause other people to to act in certain ways, I I hope those are completely ineffective on you because you're part of, of God's kingdom. The power of the gospel is seen as it is incompatible with the kingdoms of this world. Here's the second thing I want you to see. The present power of the gospel is seen as the lost believe it. The the present power of the gospel, the gospel now in the present is seen as lost people believe the gospel message. Look at what happens next. The messengers from the king leave and they go out and they they try, the, the men pursue after the... Spies it says in verse seven then we, when we come to verse eight, and Rahab goes up onto the roof and and she says she says these words, and as as she says these words, I, I want you to notice something a little bit about the structure. you're going to show the the structure of of these verses in in verses nine through eleven. I don't know if you can see that very well, but she's saying essentially three things, so she says. Uh, the Lord has given you all the land. Then she says, we're afraid. And then she says, we've heard of what God has done. Then she says again, we, our hearts melted, so we're afraid. Then The last thing she says is kind of repeated. The first thing she said, for God is God of heavens and the earth. So it's like letter A, God's given you all the land. Letter B, we're afraid. Letter C, we've heard what God has done. Then back to B, by the way, we're afraid. <laughs> and then back to letter A, God has, has given this to you because he's the Lord of all heaven and earth. Look, look at the text. See if you see that with me. So she says in verse nine. By the way, the things that she's saying here are are amazing. That she is able to articulate these truths. These are these are truths. Some of these are truths of special revelation that she just couldn't have have figured out on her own. She's had access to some sort of gospel proclamation, some sort of understanding of what God has promised to Abraham. So, look at verse first part of verse nine. This is. God's sovereign power, she says, I know, so remember she said some things earlier to the king of Jericho, I don't know, I don't know where they came from, I don't know where they went, I don't know. Now this is what she does know. I know that that the Lord, and she uses the word Yahweh there, the, the special name for God, not just some general designation for God or a God, I know that Yahweh has given you the land. This is the Abrahamic blessing, right? And then, B, the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. She's, she's essentially quoting what God told his people in Exodus 23. I will send my terror before you, and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. So, so we're afraid, okay? I, I, I know that God has given you this land, we're afraid, and then the, the center here, kind of this, this central point that she makes, we've heard what God has done. We've, we've heard of God's salvific work. Verse 10. What does she talk about? She talks about, first, the exodus, that that major event in the Old Testament that is a picture of God's saving work of his people. It's, it's the picture of the cross in the Old Testament. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. We we heard about God's deliverance of you. Exodus chapter 15, in the song of Moses, after they cross over the Red Sea, the he sings in verse 14 of Exodus 15, The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. In, in other words, the people have heard of God's saving work. Rahab has heard of God's salvation. The knowledge of the salvation of Yahweh has come to a pagan Canaanite involved in immorality. She also talks about their God's, God's work in defeating the, the two kings of the Amorites. Then she goes back to that idea of fear. So our hearts melted when we heard. And then she says this, this amazing declaration. And as soon as we heard, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, for again Yahweh, your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That is a gospel confession. I, I've heard, we have heard. I, I know what I know God is sovereign, He's giving me the land. We're afraid because of what we've heard. we've heard that God is a God who delivers and a God who destroys. Do you see the remarkable nature of what this this Again, this pagan Canaanite is declaring, this, this Canaanite who, believe, who is in a culture that believes in all sorts of gods and in all sorts of immoral practices to worship these gods, she says, there's one God, and, and it's your God, Yahweh God, who's God over all things. In other words, the Abrahamic covenant is being fulfilled in her proclamation. The nations are being blessed as they hear what God has done through his people. Malachi chapter 1 is being lived out, as God says, for from the rising of the sun to to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. That that prophetic word is being lived out in the proclamation of this woman. It's an amazing thing that's taking place here. And what is as she declares that that, that gospel truth about God's salvific work, what does she say? To what she, in response to what she knows. She says, I know that God is a God who destroys the wicked and saves his people. Therefore, what? Save me. I want to find deliverance through him. She says, save me. Save my family. I believe that this, this passage here in Joshua 2 does a couple things. I, I think it's. I think these verses are the key to understanding what's happening here in Joshua chapter two. I, I told you, the text doesn't commend what Rahab does in the lie. Right? It, it doesn't say, "Hey, great, great thing to lie there." And, and a lot of people get really hung up over that portion of the story, really disturbed by it. But notice, Scripture doesn't condemn her for what she did either. Now, if you were going to write a story of Rahab's life in Joshua chapter 2, what might you be tempted to talk about? Let, Let me tell you this story about this Rahab. She was a Canaanite. Now let me tell you about how terrible the Canaanites are. Don't even, they don't even start it on the Canaanites. Here's the story of the Canaanites. Now here, here she's, she's a prostitute among the Canaanites, not even a not even a, like a temple prostitute or a religious prostitute. She's a, she's a tavern prostitute. And let me tell you about the, the terrible immorality and the things that she would have done. And now, not only, she's also a liar. And let me tell you about that. Whenever Scripture talks about Rahab, those are not the things that Scripture focuses on. Scripture doesn't talk about Rahab the liar Whenever scripture talks about Rahab, it it focuses on God's salvific work of her and it talks about her confession of faith and her faith in Yahweh. The power of the gospel should give us hope. And as we talk about our stories and about ourselves, as we talk about each other, the stories that we tell are not about the bad things that we've done. You know, about six years ago, this person did this. And about ten years ago, I know they're, I know they're in church now and serving in lot. but let me tell you, we've had some issues. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel celebrates the power of, of God at work in our lives. It says, look, this is who this person is, and as the, the text of Joshua Goes through chapter two. It's like as the narrator goes through the first cha- first eight verses, there's like this this hurry nature. He doesn't talk about how the king of Jericho knew, knew things. He didn't talk about how Rahab knew things. He didn't talk about exactly where the spies were and how they got there. He it's like he wants to get to these verses where he can talk about Rahab's declaration of who God is and what He's done. That's the story of Rahab. That's the power of the gospel in the present. The power of, God, of the gospel in the present is as it transforms lives now as we hear the gospel and respond to it. As we call out to God in our sin, save us, and he does. Maybe some of you read the, the story, the Scarlet Letter, in high school or in college. And, and you know the story of the Scarlet Letter is about this, this woman who's been caught in adultery. They're they not sure who the, the father of her child is, but they know that she's been in an adulterous relationship as, as she was pregnant. And at the beginning of the story, she's, she's forced to wear this, this Scarlet Letter A. Throughout the story, she, she wears the, the A. And, and in my mind, I think Nathaniel Hawthorne is not saying, as this very horrific story takes place and the, the terrors in her life, He's not saying that it was wrong to see adultery as wrong. I think the the terror of the story is in the hypocrisy of the people who judged her, and in the unrelenting nature of their commandate of their condemnation of her. The horrific part of the story for me, as as I read it, is. The unrelenting nature of their condemning of her. That's not the gospel. Without the gospel, the stories of each of our lives would, would be horrific. there would not be there would be things in our lives that we would certainly not want others to know there would be things in our lives that even if we were okay with people knowing we certainly wouldn't want them to f- to focus on but rahab here says okay look this is who god is now Save me," she boldly requests. Do you grasp the awesomeness of what's happening here? She's confessing Yahweh, a pagan Canaanite who should, by all logic, never be able to know Yahweh, is now confessing Him. God, in His grace, is fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant in her life. God has made great demands in our lives. Could not be greater. as we think about what he's promised in the future how can we know that he's, he's that powerful the, the way that we can know that he's that powerful is we can look around this room and we can look at one another i mean you know your neighbor right <laughs> and we can say man we do not deserve to be in this room in relationship with god right now through faith most of us in the most of us in this room i'm guessing aren't even Part of, of the, the Jewish ethnicity. I mean, we, we are those who have been brought into this, this, this promise that God made to this Hebrew 4,000 years ago. The fact that we are able on a Sunday morning to gather together and celebrate our participation in the Abrahamic Covenant, that is a miracle. And the fact that individually God has transformed our life. Every, every child in here who has been born into a, a home in which the gospel is going to be proclaimed. And we think about those, those six children that we dedicated this morning along with their, their parents. That that's, that's the power of the gospel, that these families have a desire to teach their children about the Lord, that, that we have the opportunity to proclaim the Lord to them. That's a miracle. The fact that there are, there are older people in our church who have believed the gospel, that is a miracle. The fact that you're in a marriage in which potentially that other person has been aware of the gospel, perhaps by even God's grace, has believed the gospel. That's that's miraculous. The fact that a person can sit in our church service on a Sunday morning and hear the gospel and then believe in their heart and become a believer, that's that's a miracle. The fact that there are people who can be in our, our relationships, in our neighborhoods, and hear the gospel and we've, we hear stories of this, of, of people placing their faith in Jesus Christ and their lives transforming, that's a miracle. The fact that we have people from our church and other nations proclaiming the gospel to people in closed countries, and those people are hearing the gospel and by faith connecting themselves to the Abrahamic covenant, that is a miracle. That's the power of the gospel now in the present. And as I hear of the power of the gospel now in the present, it gives me hope that God will fulfill his promises to me in the future. The presence of each person in this room who's confessed Christ as his or her Savior is a story of the present power of the gospel. Last thing here. The present power of the gospel is seen as as the saved live it out. The men... Then tell her, okay, now you need to identify yourselves with us. And, and if you believe this, if you believe this confession, then, then here's, here's what you need to do. You're one of us, act like it. Be loyal to us. That's in verse 14. And then Rahab indicates that what she believes, what she's claimed is true. In other words, she continues to, to exercise obedience in regards to her faith. And then they give her the instructions. Okay, here's this, take this scarlet thread. And that scarlet thread, I think there's a, a gospel picture as well. The cord ties her back with the story of of the exodus you know scar the the blood being uh, put on the posts of the homes that were to be saved spared from destruction the same is true for her in other words as she lives in obedience to the confession of faith that she's made she's demonstrating that the gospel message that god proclaims is powerful now here in the present it gives us hope in the future James, again, chapter 2, talks about Rahab and says, Rahab was justified by her works. In other words, her, her faith was demonstrated by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Faith apart from works is dead, says James. She continues to act in accordance with obedience. And, and listen to the encouragement that happens at the end of the chapter. Look at the, look at the last verse. Verse. These spies come to Joshua and they say, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. God has promised Joshua incredible things in the future, but he's called him to do difficult things in the present. And the story of Rahab that the men relate back to Joshua is an encouragement to Joshua as he sees God's power at work in the present. And brothers and sisters, the same should be true for you and me as well. But the demands that God makes in your life are not small. They're all encompassing. And if God were not a loving God, if God were not a powerful God, we could be suspicious. But if we see the power of the gospel at work in people's lives, we say this is a good message I'm going to give all to God, trust in him, and give him my life, and he will give me eternal joy. And I believe it. I believe he can do it. I can believe he will do it. The power of the gospel in the present gives us courage as we anticipate the power of the gospel in the future. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel message. We thank you for the good news of your son, Jesus. We thank you that we can can trust in him now. We can believe in his truths now, uh, the, the truths that he proclaimed, and that we can be united with you through our union with your son Jesus by faith. We pray that each of us would, would trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, that we would see the power of the gospel at work in our lives, that we would, as we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we would live out our, our profession of him as our Lord as we submit to him in all things. Give us the ability to do that by your grace for our joy We pray this in your son's name, amen.